Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh podcast. So today is an epic interview, and it is with one of my favorite authors of the last 5, 10, 10 years, and today is Johan Harry. So Johan Harry is a British writer who has authored three New York Times bestselling books. They have been translated into 38 languages and have been praised by a broad range of people from Oprah to Elton John to Naomi Klein. His latest book, Stone and Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, was published in January 22, and it is an incredible read. And that's the sole focus of what we're kind of bringing into this today's episode. His first book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, was adapted into the Oscar-nominated film, The United States vs. Billy Holiday. And Johan was also executive producer of the actual movie itself. He also has his second book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions, was described by the British Journal of General Practice as one of the most important texts of recent years and shortlisted for an award by the BMA. So Lost Connections was an incredibly powerful book if someone hasn't read that and it's about mental health and it, it's, it's an important insight into how we function as humans. So today's book and today's interview, we kind of talk about it's still in focus and why you can't pay attention. So some of the things that we talk about on today's podcast, and I love this chat, uh, was how your nutrition can actually affect your attention span, how stress can affect your attention span, how sleep or their lack of can affect your attention span and how the economy is actually functioning based on limiting your sleep. The facts about willpower and the facts about attention spans in general. And it's not our it's not our fault in relation to losing the attention span through social media, all that kind of stuff. So it's an it's an incredible episode. I loved having this chat. It was so like to get Johan on was a it was a a big big thing for myself personally, and I'm delighted to have had him on. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with the amazing author Johan Harry. Johan, how are we, sir? I'm all right, but you just pushed. Um, we're speaking on Zoom, and you just push the button to record. And the, you know that woman whose voice goes "recording in progress." I always felt like she feels very sounds very sarcastic, like "recording in progress." I hope you fucking enjoy it, you know. Like, and at the end when it stops and it's like "recording is now finished." Hi, you'll never get that fucking time back. Do you know what I mean? I also feel like I wonder if the woman who recorded that message, if she just fucks with her friends sometimes on Zoom by just suddenly going "recording in progress" to see if it fucks up. And the voice How am I? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm undercaffeinated, but I'm cheerful. I got a good blood. Oh, good, uh, Johan. I know I've I, I kind of fangirled before before we went on oh. here about kind of like the Lost Connections book and then the the brand new book that you released as well. So I'm gonna get you to talk about what the kind of the the, the real message kind of between about the new book is uh, Stone and Focus and kind of like there's some scary stats that I've got someone in front of me about kind of like <laughs> they're frightening. Uh, so we don't need to be you... scared because we can solve it. But I have to say also before we start that. I always feel I, I go on quite a lot of fitness podcasts and I always feel a bit fraudulent because I'm the most unfit fucker you can ever imagine. So I always feel like this is like turn, this is like such folly to turn to me for advice on fitness. Um, my, my ex once said to me, the only time I've ever seen you run was when you thought KFC was about to close early. And um, so, yeah, I, I do not want to present myself as a fitness authority. I'm going to defer to you on that. But yeah, the reason I wrote the book is I mean, it started for quite a simple personal reason, to be honest, Shane. I I noticed that my own attention was going to shit. You know, with each year that passed, things that required deep focus, like reading a book, um, having deep conversations, things that are so deep to my sense of self, 
were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I wanted to understand why, especially since this seemed to be happening to so many of the people around me, and particularly a lot of the young people I love, who often seem to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat, you know? So to get to the bottom of this, I mean, I just started by looking at some of the raw evidence. It's just kind of shocking. You know, the typical American office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. For every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. So I wanted to be like, okay, what's going on here? Right. So I decided, you know, because it's possible, I kind of thought, well, doesn't every generation worry about their attention? Isn't this just a perennial human problem? So I ended up going on this big journey. I, I used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to go all over the world from Miami to Moscow to Melbourne, to Montreal, not just cities that begin with the letter M. Uh, and I interviewed over 250 of the leading experts on attention and focus across the world. And, and I learned from them, sorry, over 200, I said that wrong, I said again, I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus all over the world, different aspects. And I learned from them that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention better um, have been decreasing and loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been increasing in recent years. So if you're struggling to focus and pay attention, you're not alone. It's not just you. It's not a flaw in you. Uh, actually, this is being done to all of us. Uh, your attention didn't collapse. Your attention has been stolen from you by some really big forces. But once you understand those forces, you can begin to take them on and together we can deal with them. It's because I know you kind of, I think you had a, you had a time away, you talk about in the book, you had a time away with your nephew, I think it was. And one of the deals was that you wanted to have some quality time with him, but then he went on his phone. I was kind of like, the deal was you couldn't have some, you couldn't go back and you couldn't look at social media. I couldn't be going on Snapchat. I couldn't go on WhatsApp, whatever it may have been. But one of the big insights was kind of like that, that present time just doesn't seem to be there for our generation for the generation after us, which is quite scary. But you decided to take time out for a few months with, and you talk about it in the book of looking for a phone with no uh, mobile phone or for no for no internet. You talk about having getting a laptop that has the internet removed out of it. What were the what were the two or three biggest lessons you looked or you took from that time where you had no access to external noise, external validation? And what, what were the biggest lessons? Well, just to say about that very first thing you mentioned there about my, it was my godson. Because um, that was really what made me, it was this experience that made me try this very radical departure from the internet for three months. So when my godson was nine, he developed this brief but incredibly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. I never understood where it came from. But it was especially cute because he, he didn't know that Elvis had become like a cheesy cliche. So he would sing like Viva Las Vegas or Suspicious Minds totally sincerely. I think he was probably the last person in the history of the world to ever do a non-ironic impression of Elvis. And um, when I would tuck him in at night, he would often get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. And I would try to skip over the bit where he like shit himself to death on the toilet at the end. And, and um, one night he said to me, I was talking about Graceland where Elvis lived and he looked at me very intensely. And he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, yeah, sure. The way you do with nine-year-olds, knowing like yeah. next week it'll be Legoland or whatever. 
And he said, no, do you really promise? Do you swear you are going to take me to Graceland one day? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of it again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. He dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, one day we were sitting on my sofa just behind where I'm talking to you now. And all day I've been trying to talk to him and, and he literally spent, this is not an exaggeration, almost literally spent every single waking hour of his life alternating between his iPad and his iPhone in this kind of blurve, WhatsApp, YouTube, porn, whatever it might be. And, and I was just getting no traction with him in anything I tried to talk to him about. And to be totally honest with you, Shane, I wasn't that much better. I was looking at my own devices that whole day. And I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before. And I was like, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, oh, I didn't even remember this thing years before. And I was like, no, we've got to break this routine. This is, this is a numbing routine. This is not healthy. Let's get the fuck out of here. Let's go all over the South. But, and there's one, you've got to make one promise. Um, you've got, when we go, to leave your phone in the hotel during the day. And he was like, he thought about it. He's like, yeah. Yeah, you could see this wasn't making him health, healthy or happy. So I think it was literally two, two weeks, maybe three weeks later, we flew from London to New Orleans, which is where we started. And we went all over the South. And a couple of weeks later, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And when you get to Graceland now, this is even before COVID, there's no one to show you around. What happens is they give you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says go left, go right. You know, it tells you about the room you're in. And in every room you're in, there's a picture of that room on the iPad. And so what happens is everyone walks around Graceland staring at an iPad, right? And they're just sort of staring and staring as they walk around. And I'm a bit kind of irritated by this. I'm trying to make eye contact. with It's a bit weird, right? And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favorite room. It's full of loads of fake plants. And there was a Canadian couple next to us. And the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I, I laughed out loud. I was like, that's fine. It's a joke. And I turned and they were just swiping back and forward. And I, I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because look, we're in the jungle room. You don't need to look at it on a screen. We're actually there. And they backed away. think I was mad, possibly correctly. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner, staring at Snapchat, because from the moment we landed, he couldn't stop. And I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone out of his hands. And I said, I know you're afraid of missing out. This is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not showing up to your own life. You're not present at the events of your own existence. He stormed off. I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. And then that night I found him in the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying. And he was sitting by the guitar-shaped swimming pool. And I, I went up to him and I apologized for getting angry. And he, and he didn't look up from his phone, but he said, I know something's really wrong here and I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to investigate this because, you know, we, we, we went away because we were struggling to be present, but what we realized is that inability to be present was everywhere, right? It was yeah. all around us. It was an omnipresent problem. 
And that's when I thought, okay, I need to get to the bottom of what's going on here. And at the time, I thought the problem, I had a very simple story in my head. I basically thought my attention was deteriorating for two reasons. One is because I wasn't strong enough. I was lacking in willpower. And secondly, someone invented the smartphone, right? Those are basically the two stories I had in my head. So because those are the two stories I had in my head, I later learned that was ludicrously oversimplified. What I did is I decided to go, I was lucky the film rights to one of my books had just sold, so I had some money. And I decided to just go away for three months and have no access to the internet of any kind, right? Um, I, I, I No smartphone, no laptop. So I went to this place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, which is a kind of little kind of gay beach resort. It's the kind of place where more than one person earns a living by dressing as Ursula, the villain in The Little Mermaid and singing songs about cunnilingus, right? So gives you a good picture of Provincetown. Um, and yeah, I was there for three months and it was it, it, loads of things happened in those three months. There were some ups and some downs and lots of things that I learned. And obviously later I then went on this big journey into the science. But I think the main thing I learned you know, when I went, I was nearly 40. And I thought, maybe you can't pay attention just because you got old, right? People get older, their attention gets less good. Maybe that's what happened to you. My attention in Provincetown was as good as it had been when I was 17 years old. I could sit and read books for eight hours a day. I was stunned by how much my attention came back. I later realized that was actually because of lots of things, not just the deprivation of the tech i slept much more i was much less stressed actually because there's no fast food in provincetown i ate really different i mean there's one pizza place thank god but other than that there's no fast food um so i was stunned by how much it came back and i remember on my last day there thinking well fuck i'm never gonna go back to how i was before why would you go back this is amazing and i went back i got my phone back and within about a month i was about 80 percent back where i've been not totally but and that's what i was like oh, you know, that's not really the answer. So what is the answer? How do I integrate some of these insights I got into my wider life? What's the best science on this? And that led me on this much bigger, bigger journey. I think the, because I know that the, the the food thing that you spoke about there is kind of like one of the big things that I took away from it as kind of like a nutritionist and a PT yeah, and the impact that it actually has on your attention span, because if you look at TV now, or if you listen to the radio, or if you look and go for a walk and you'll see all these ads on, on billboards or on bus stops and stuff like that regarding the amount of processed food that's kind of out there, like how much of an impact is the nutrition that we are consuming and kids that are consuming right now having an impact on our attention span? And what can we kind of, if anything, do about it? Yeah, this is so important. And of all the causes that I learned about, so of the 12 causes that I write about in Stolen Focus that are damaging our ability to focus and pay attention, I think food was the one, one of the two that most surprised me. And frankly, is the one that I most struggle with of all the changes that I recommend in the book. Um, so I, there's this really interesting new movement called nutritional psychiatry, which is all about looking at how the way we eat affects the way our brains work and how we feel. And it's a really fascinating new field. You should speak if you want intros to any of these guys. Let me know because they're really fascinating people. And I learned a huge amount from them. But I, uh, people like Dr. Uma Devi Naidu, who 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 is in Boston, Dr. Drew Ramsey in in uh, New York. But uh, so I would, and lots of other people, Dale Pinnock, one of Britain's leading nutritionists. So I would say there's three. I mean, there's a, there's lots more that are debated, but there's three really big ones. 
that I thought were most important. So the first is, um, imagine you eat the standard British breakfast. I'm pretty sure it's a standard Irish breakfast as well. Let's say you have sugary cereal or, you know, white toasted bread with butter, right? What that does is that releases a huge amount of energy into your brain really quickly in a kind of swoosh, right? It's like a lot of glucose is released in your brain and it's like, fucking A, I'm awake, I'm up for the day, right? You feel like you've finally woken up. But what that does is that releases so much energy so fast into your brain that you'll be sitting at your desk an hour or two later, or your kid will be sitting at their school desk and you'll get a huge energy crash. And when you get an energy crash, you get what's called brain fog, where you just can't focus very well until you have another sugary carby treat or you drug yourself with caffeine. I say that as I sip a Coke Zero. Hang on a second. I wasn't deliberately timed. Um, uh, so the way we eat now puts us on a, the standard Western diet, puts us on a roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes throughout the day, which leaves us with patches of brain fog, um, which obviously you don't get if you eat a diet that releases energy more steadily, like say, say you had porridge in the morning yeah. that releases energy pretty steadily. You don't get those, those spikes and, and crashes the way Dale Pinnock, the brilliant British nutritionist put it to me is it's like, we're putting rocket fuel into a mini. It'll go really fast and then it'll just stop. Right. So you can see that's one way the, the second way is that for your brain to function optimally, it needs to, your diet needs to contain certain nutrients for your brain to grow and develop. Your brain is made out of the foods we eat, right? To a significant degree, as Dr. Drew Ramsey put it to me. Um, and our diet is just chronically lacking in a lot of the, 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 the nutrients. We need most famously omega-3s, which are found in fish and sardines, oily fish and sardines. And it turns out, unfortunately, supplements just don't do it. Having a Big Mac and a little omega-3 supplement doesn't work because your body doesn't absorb nutrients from supplements in the same way that it absorbs nutrients when they're contained in whole foods. Thirdly, and this for me was the most disturbing in a way, is it's not just that our diets are lacking the things that we need. Our diets also contain chemicals that act on our brains like drugs. So there's a study here in Britain in Southampton in 2007. They got 297 kids and they split them into two groups. And the first group was just given water and the second group was given water laced with either uh, sorry laced with synthetic dyes. So the kind of synthetic dyes that are in a shit ton of the stuff that you buy at the supermarket. And then the kids were monitored and the kids who drunk the synthetic dyes were significantly more likely to become manic, to become hyperactive, to struggle with their focus and attention. So you can see how these three factors are coming together. And it, essentially, if you think about these changes, I, I thought about this a lot through the prism of something that had happened to me when I was a kid. So my dad's from Switzerland. He's from, that's why I've got this weird name. He's from a Swiss mountain. Uh, him and my mum met in London when uh, they lived next door to each other. My dad didn't speak a word of English and my mum only spoke English. And uh, they had what my mother calls a series of one night stands, which I've tried to explain is not a concept that makes sense. And she got pregnant and thought they had to get married. And she'll often go, she's got, she'll often say, he seems so fucking nice when I couldn't understand what he was saying. <laughs> anyway, so when I was a kid, my dad used to sort of banish me every summer back to the farm, the wooden farmhouse where he grew up when he was, when he was a kid to live with his parents and you know, I was this fucking little suburban London boy turned up with loads of books and my grandparents like, what the fuck is this? But so I had been basically brought up by my Scottish grandmother who ate a kind of standard working class Scottish diet. So 
the happiest day of my Scottish grandmother's life was the day the microwave was invented, right? I mean, it's, it's never seen her in more joy. Um, and so I was grew up eating, you know, shitty processed food, right? Uh, which I still love. And I got to Switzerland and my grandparents ate how most humans throughout history had eaten. They grew their own food, right? Uh, or they they raised their own meat animals and killed them had it for me. So my grandparents ate nothing but fresh food. And I remember when I first went there, I remember very clearly I was nine, the first night I was there, them putting this their food in front of me, like salad and stuff, and me saying, that this is not food. I said to them, I want food. Right. And I wasn't being sarcastic or joking. Yeah. I literally didn't recognize it as food. Right. And they were completely puzzled. Anyway, two weeks passed of me like basically eating nothing. And in the end, my, my grandmother cracked and agreed me to take me to the McDonald's in Zurich, I think. And when she saw me eating the McDonald's, she, she wouldn't even try it. She said exactly what I said to her. This isn't food. Right. She was completely disgusted by it. And you think in the space of three generations, the scale of that transformation for some people listening up before generations, especially for generations, what, what we became would be, un, as Michael Pollan, the food writer says, what we eat would be unrecognizable to our grandparents and our great grandparents. It's literally totally different. Right. Um, and, and, and what we eat just is not, is not what humans need for fuel. And that's affecting us physically. You know about that much better than I do. That's affecting us, but it's also profoundly affecting our brains. Yeah. So in terms of what we can do about it, obviously, to some degree, we can make individual changes. But we, we also have to take on the food industry. It's fucking poisoning us, right? More 18-month-old children know what the McDonald's M mean, means than know their own last name. So from the moment you're born, you are trained to think, to associate positive feelings with food that fucks you up, right? Um that's so deep in the culture. Um, I think we can do a lot to prevent kids being poisoned. A lot of countries ban the advertising of fast food to kids. I would heavily tax fast food aimed at children and heavily subsidize healthy food. Again, this is not some hypothetical. Think about the Netherlands, right? The Netherlands made a very, there was a big political fight in the Netherlands in the 1970s to make it, to guarantee that all their cities had bike lanes, that you could bike everywhere you wanted to go, right? It was a big fight. It took them a long time. They had to really fight for it, but they won. The Netherlands, everywhere you can bike around, they subsidize healthy food, not unhealthy food. We actually do the opposite. We literally subsidize unhealthy food in all sorts of ways. Um, they subsidize healthy food. As a result, they've got much lower obesity than Britain and Ireland. They've still got some it's much lower than ours and way, way, way lower than the United States. So there's lots of things we can do. Some things as individuals and some things where we have to, like the Dutch did, band together and demand something. But yeah, it, this is fixable, right? But we, but we have to uh, take it on both individually and collectively. It is quite scary that that stat that you just said there about kind of recognizing that the, the golden arches yeah, and yeah. kind of like not remembering your own or not knowing or not remembering your own surname. That's quite scary. Even talking um, about that has made me have a Big Mac craving just so you know, but okay, I'll, I'll I, hold I, off I, on ordering one. <laughs> I know, yeah. You can get it delivered to your house now as well. Uh, that's, that's the problem. Um, fuck, but, that didn't exist when I was... If you had told me, right, so I'm sitting in my flat here. If you had told me when I was 10 years old one day you will have a 90 inch television on which you can watch any film that's ever been made and there will be a button you can push and someone will bring you anything on the mcdonald's menu 10 year old johan would have been like fuck that's nirvana that's it like life doesn't get any better right so i've lived the dream <laughs> 
but it's it's mad how much of a psychological aspect like food is because yeah. we see it as like as a reward or a punishment for a lot of people that they associate these happy memories. Like I know for me, like bread, like it's a weird one, but brown bread reminds me of my granny. So when I potentially feel a little bit lower, I'll be like, let's go for brown bread because I want to kind of warm myself. It hits certain uh, parts of the brain, the dopamine, the endorphins, that side of things, and the serotonin part of the brains. But I think a lot of people will go for the more comfort food foods rather than kind of that side of things. But it is, and they're kind of like the sugary foods, the fatty foods, the carbohydrate foods. There's nothing wrong with those foods in moderation. But if it's your soul diet on a day-to-day basis, well, then you're going to feel fatigued. And if you're having more and more of that, more fatigue, less nutritious choices you're going to be in that loop which it can be very hard to get out of i think there's, um, two, I think there's a few things in what you just said that are really important shane and, and it, you're absolutely right and this interacts with two of the other factors two of the other 12 factors that i write about in, in style and focus that are so harming our attention one is sleep let's come back to that but let's think about big time stress for example right so the relationship between stress and attention all the relationship yeah. between stress and eating are very similar actually so it's funny because we were talking just before we came on air about how it feels like the pandemic is finally ending or gone, you know, touch every fucking piece of wood in the whole world, but let's, you know, the entire fucking wooden city of Tokyo. But the, the, um, and it's interesting because I, I, I thought a lot about, so one of the other causes I write about is, is rising stress and what we, what we can do about it. And obviously most of the book is about solutions, but if you think about, I remember at the start of the pandemic two years ago, loads of people I knew who weren't doing the kind of heroic work of, you know, the emergency services uh, saying to me, oh, we're going to be shutting our homes for ages. I'm going to read War and Peace. I'm going to learn French on Duolingo, right? Or whatever. And everyone listening will have noticed no fucker read Tolstoy and no one learned French, right? In fact, people Googling, how do I get my brain to work increased by 300%. Exactly, yeah. And the reason I think, I think we, we know the reason why it was so hard to focus and it's related to something that's bigger that will we can we can we can use this insight as we emerge from covid which is so i'd interviewed this amazing woman called dr nadine burke harris who is the uh surgeon general of california the, the leading medical figure in the state the equivalent of like chris witty in britain and, and she said to me she was talking to me before covid she was talking about the general effects of stress on attention she said to me if you want to understand how stress affects your attention imagine one day you're walking down the street and out of the blue you're attacked by a bear just suddenly, and you survive. In the weeks and months that follow, something totally involuntary would happen to your attention. You would find it harder to say, read a book, watch a long TV series, because part of your brain would just start scanning for risk and danger, right? Yeah. It's just like something fucking attacked me out of the blue. What else is going to come out of the blue? It's, you're, you're just, you're vid- it's called vigilance, right? You're just vigilant to danger and risk. It's a perfectly sensible response, right? Okay, now imagine that you're attacked by a bear again, right? You're pretty unlucky in this scenario and you also survive, right? Then your brain would likely flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where you can't focus on the things in front of you and your brain is just obsessively scanning, trying to figure out well, what the fuck is going on here, right? Where's the next danger going to come from? You know, we all know soldiers who come back from wars are often in a state of hypervigilance. Yeah. Sexually abused children are often in a state of hypervigilance. So, and... And there was, it's really there was an Australian child psychiatrist, wonderful man named Dr. John Giardini, who said to me, you know, deep focus is a really good strategy when you're safe, right? Read a book, you'll learn, you'll grow. Deep focus is a really dumb strategy when you're in danger. You know, you'd be an idiot to sit at the Battle of the Somme reading a novel. You're going to get shot in the head, right? 
we evolved to be able to pay deep focus when we feel safe. And we haven't been safe the last two years for obvious reasons. The bear came back. It came back twice, right? We were frightened of the virus. We were frightened of the profound upending of our lives in response to the virus. We were frightened by the financial insecurity that's come from the pandemic. You know, we're, we're speaking to you just the day after Russia invaded Ukraine. There's all sorts of reasons. <laughs> Europe is on the brink of war. There's all sorts of reasons for well, it's not on the brink of war. It is, in fact, at war. Um, the, the, God, that's an adjustment, mental adjustment, isn't it? To even say that. Um, the, the, so there are all sorts of reasons we've been increasingly vigilant, right? Uh, that's not a malfunctioning of your brain either. Like we evolved to be vigilant in situations of danger for a very good reason, right? But you can see how, and this is true of more normal forms of stress that are not, you know, the invasion of Ukraine or a global pandemic. Nor, there's lots of evidence, more normal forms of stress like overwork and so on, hugely harm your ability to focus and pay attention. So I go through lots of things in the book that either as individuals or together we can do to significantly reduce our stress levels as well. Anything that reduces stress will improve deep focus. I think when people think stress, it feels like it, it kind of almost like some people wear it as a badge of honor. And I know I've kind of like, I've, I like 2017 was when I kind of had my, my breakdown of my health scare because of stress and it, it wasn't pretty and it wasn't nice, but I think it almost people wear this kind of like stress as a badge of honor. And if people really want to kind of go into the stress, like obviously read the book, but there's like the body says no. And then there's separate don't wear ulcers. If people really want to go to like the nitty gritty of the sciencey part of it, but like your, your body, tells you that like it does keep a scorecard like if there's something going on and you're not eating or you are eating more or women are having issues with their cycles and stuff like that, the body's telling you like that you need to kind of settle down and calm down a little bit more and uh, the, the stress factors that people are going through through lack of boundaries or through no fault of their own with kind of like obviously with like their, their own pre-standard times like that's going on in the ukraine and stuff like that unfortunately um but day-to-day -day boundaries and stuff like that it seems to be a massive massive issue for an awful lot of people and that kind of can lead into the sleep side of things and if one of my clients is listening to this they'll be like i hear shane talking about sleep again um <laughs> so like sleep is literally i can't function without it not many can but like some of the stats that you were talking about in the book is quite scary it's like 15 percent of people wake up refreshed 23% of people get less than five hours. Since 1942, we've lost one hour of sleep a night. Um, it's down 20% in 100 years, and kids actually become hyper. But the biggest thing that scared me was the economy is dependent on us being sleep-deprived. Can you talk about that a little bit more? No, essentially, it connects with the first bit of what you said really well, which is about our conception of productivity, right? Yeah. So like you... There's a big part of me, a big part of my internal voice. I'm doing nine interviews today, right? Yeah. And I know I'm going to get to the end of today and I'm going to be fucking knackered. And a little bit of me will go and I'll be really genuinely exhausted. I know on the scale of all the exhaustion in the world, this is not very high. And I, oh no, I had to talk too much. But you know what I mean? It is, it's tiring. And there'll be a little bit of me that will be like, good job, Johan. You worked yourself to the point of exhaustion. And I think in our culture, there's a, a, a belief in product that what productivity means, it, you are a productive person if you have exhausted yourself, right? Yeah. And we need to really challenge that, that story because it's not true. There's overwhelming evidence. If you work yourself to the point of exhaustion, you will lack creativity. 
You will be much more incompetent. You'll make loads more mistakes. An exhausted person is not a productive person, right? And I only had to say that for people to get get it, right? So one, there are lots of levels at which we can think about this exhaustion. One is actually in our work hours. And I went to a place that did an amazing experiment about this that we can talk about if you like in, in New Zealand. But so you think about sleep. I interviewed loads of the leading experts on sleep in the world. There were loads of moments when I was kind of shocked by what I learned, but there's one experiment that really drove it home for me. There's this guy called Dr. Charles Seisler. He's arguably the leading sleep expert on the world, in the world. He's, he's, he's at Harvard Medical School and he, he advises everyone from the US Secret Service to the Boston Red Sox on the science of sleep. And it's made many breakthroughs on this. And Dr. Seisler said to me, talked to me about how he did this experiment that, that discovered a phenomenon. It's kind of a simple experiment. You basically get tired people and you put them in brain scans. But what he discovered is that you can appear to be awake, right? You can be looking around you. You can be talking as much as you and me are talking now. And yet when you're tired, whole parts of your brain can have literally gone to sleep. It's called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. So when we say I'm half asleep, we think of that as a metaphor. It's not a metaphor. Lots of us are literally half asleep, right? If you stay awake for 19 hours, which doesn't sound like very much, your attention deteriorates as much as if you had got legally drunk. But you only need, I think it's 10 days of six hours a night, and you get to the same level. You're, it's, it's, I'm pretty sure that's the figure that Dr. Seisler gives I go through it in the book. And then you're at the same level as if you were legally drunk, right? So you can see how this lack of sleep is absolutely crucial for attention. I wanted to understand why. One of the people who really helped me to understand this is a, an amazing woman named Professor, Professor Roxanne Prichard, who's at the University of Minneapolis and a, another one of the leading sleep experts. And she explained to me, so well, the whole time you're awake, like you and me are now, and presumably everyone listening is, um, your brain is building up something called metabolic waste, right? She calls it brain cell poop. Whole time you're awake, your brain is working, and it's, it's accumulating metabolic waste. When you go to sleep, the, your, the cerebral spinal fluid channels in your brain open up and a watery fluid washes through your brain and carries a load of that brain cell poop down to your liver, where obviously it'll eventually exit your body, right? When you don't sleep, your brain does not clean itself properly. It doesn't physically repair itself properly. When you're sleeping, you're repairing. If you don't sleep fully, your brain does not get to repair. It's actually why, weirdly, you also, when you're tired, you feel, you're not slightly hungover feeling like you're literally yeah. clogged up. You are literally clogged up, right? I mean, this is so extreme that people who don't sleep well are much more likely to develop dementia later in life because that metabolic waste that builds up in their brain causes plaques and tangles. I mean, there's other things that cause it as well, but that's one of yeah. them. Um, so you can see why if you don't sleep properly, you have not allowed yourself to repair. You know, we think of sleep as a, as a passive process. Oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is a profoundly active process, right? And we are depriving ourselves. Lots of other things happen when you dream, you process stressful events, you make sense of your life. There's so many things that happen when you're asleep that are so important. That's my alarm telling me that person might be on. That's a fucking switch his alarm off. Hang on. Um, that's telling me to warn me that my doctor might call me. Um, yeah. When you sleep, so many essential processes take place. If you don't sleep, you are denying yourself those essential processes. 
So, uh, and, and it's not just you doing that. We're all doing that. I mean, we sleep, as you said, the National Sleep Foundation says we sleep, calculated that we sleep 20% less than we did a century ago. Now, there's lots of reasons, but there's something Dr. Seisler discovered, a kind of breakthrough in how we think about sleep, that really helped me. It's fascinating. He, um, it really helped me to solve my own sleep problem although it's quite a convoluted solution, I would recommend it to other people. So what you discovered, it, so there's lots of evidence showing that humans are as sensitive to light as algae, right? Light massively determines the way we think and feel. And human beings evolved for one particular thing to happen to us when it gets dark. So imagine you're out on a camping trip and you haven't set up your tent yet and it starts to get dark. Your body, when, you get, when it gets dark, will give you a surge of energy which will mean, great, you get to set up your tent before it's completely dark and you won't be able to see properly, right? So you can see how in human evolution that it's really useful that we evolved to get a surge of energy as it got dark. Because if you were separated from the tribe, the group, the cave, it gets dark, you get a surge of energy, you get back safely, right? So this is very deep in our evolution for very good reasons. The problem is because of artificial light, now we control when it gets dark. So imagine that you're lying in bed you're about to go to sleep and you're watching the tally on your phone. And then you switch your phone off and shut your eyes. The signal your body receives is, fuck, it just got dark. We've got to give Shane a, a burst of energy saying, get back to the cave, right? Doesn't know you're already in your bed, right? So when it gets dark, when you, when you trigger the darkness, which we all do now, I mean, maybe there's some people listening who are farmers or whatever who go to sleep when it gets naturally dark, but not many. The, when, when, you, when you trigger the darkness, you will give yourself a huge surge of energy. So what's happening is it's like just before we all go, 90% of us look at a glowing screen before we go to sleep. It's like we're taking a drug to wake us up immediately before we go to sleep, right? So what Dr. Seisler said is you've got to give yourself at least two hours before you go to sleep in which you don't see any glowing light. Or if you do, it should be very, very low light. You know, the kind of light you might put on a book if you're reading it, not the kind of light from a kind of glowing screen. Yeah. Um, and I found that really hard. Uh, and I, I sort of found the solution. I can't honestly tell you I do it every night because I don't. Um, and one of the reasons I'm knackered today is because I didn't do it last night. But the, the and, and it's also uh, twinned to the solution to one of the other 12 causes that I write about in Style and Focus or one of the part of the solution to one of the other problems. If it's okay, I'll just set up that problem as well because I think it helps us to think about it. So I went to interview one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, a man named Professor Earl Miller, who's at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he said to me, look, there's one thing you've got to understand about the human brain more than anything else. You could only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is just a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not significantly changed in 40,000 years. It's not going to change on any time scale. Any of us are going to see you can only think about one thing at a time. But what, what's happened is we've fallen for a massive delusion. The average American teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. Think about my godson who I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So what happens is scientists get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people as well. And they get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time. And they always discover the same thing. You can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very quickly between those tasks. You switch, 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 and back again. And it turns out that juggling comes with a really big cost. 
the technical term for it is the switch cost effect. So when you try and do more than one thing at a time, you will do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You'll make more mistakes. You'll be much less creative. Um, you'll remember much less of what you do. And when I say that, it sounds like a small effect. This is a really big effect. I'll give you an example of a very small study backed by a much wider body of evidence that really drove this home to me. Um, <laughs> Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, they got a scientist in to study their workers. And he split their workers into two groups. And the first group was told, um, get on with your work and your, whatever your task is for the day, and you're not going to be interrupted. And the second group was told, get on with your work, but you've got to also answer a heavy load of email and phone calls at the same time. So pretty much how most of us live, right? And at the end of it, this scientist tested the IQ of all the workers. The group that had not been interrupted scored 10 IQ points higher. To give you a sense of how big that effect is, if you and me sat down now and we smoked a fat spliff together, Shane, and we got stoned, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So in the short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time, than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being distracted all the time. Now, clearly you'd be better off neither getting stoned nor being distracted. And it's important to say that, you know, that's in the short term. If you were a long-term chronic smoke stoner, then obviously it would affect your brain more. But you can see... You know, I mean, another study found that just receiving eight text messages an hour lowers your brain power for the main thing you're trying to focus on by 30%, right? This is why Professor Miller said, we are living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions. If you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But loads of us are never getting 23 minutes to spare, right? So for all of the problems that I write about in Stolen Focus, all of the 12 factors causing these attention crises... I argue there's two way, two, le two different ways we've got to respond. I think of them as defense and offense. We've got to defend ourselves and our kids as much as possible. And there's dozens of things I talk about in the book that we can do to do that. And they're really important and I'm passionately in favor of them. But I, I want to be honest with people, that will only get you so far. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all the time. And then they're leaning forward and going, do you know what, mate? Uh, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. And you want to go, fuck off. I'll learn to meditate. That's really valuable. But you need to stop pouring itching powder on me, you fucker. Right? So what we need to do is go on offense against the forces that are doing this to us. And that can sound a bit fancy. I give very practical examples of places that have done it. Anyway, all of which is a long way of setting up the answer to the sleep thing, which is, I'll give you an example of one, one of the many personal solutions that I built to both switching and sleep. You can't see it from here, Shane, but over there, I've got something called a K-safe. Yes, I swear I'm not being paid commission by these people. <laughs> I was asked recently an email if I was because their sales have massively gone up since I started doing about them. But so a K-safe is a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial, and you push the button and it will lock away your phone for anything between five minutes and a whole day. Um, I use that for four hours a day uh, to do my writing. I won't sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we both imprison our phones. Um, you know, I, I won't have my friends around for dinner unless we all put our phones in the phone jail, right? It's very stressful at first. They find it very difficult. And then they start to experience the pleasures of focus again. And I always say to people, Think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good dad, 
uh, learning to play the guitar, whatever that thing you're proud of is, it required a huge amount of focus and attention. And when focus and attention break down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down. Your ability to solve your problems breaks down. And when you start to get even a little bit of focus back, you become much more competent, right? Um, anyway, so I use the K-Safe. That's K-Safe is one of my personal techniques. I stress we also have to have the collective techniques we can talk about if you want. Um, but also it really helped me with the sleep thing because what, what I, I realized what I couldn't do. Oh, did I lose you? No, you're okay. That's weird. You've vanished from my, hang on a second. Oh, there you are. Um, so uh, what I realized didn't work was just saying to myself, okay, don't look at the screen two hours before you go to bed. Because I would be lying in bed and I'd be like, oh, fuck, that was that one email I needed to answer. And I, would get, I couldn't stop myself, right? So what I do now is I use the case safe. So two hours before I'm going to go to sleep, I take my phone, I put it in the case safe. By the way, the case safe is very flimsy. If someone broke into your house, you could smash it in a second. You'd have to buy another hundred pound case safe. You put it in the case safe. I put it in the case safe. So say two hours before I want to go to bed, I'll lock it away so that it won't open for six hours. So that I've locked it in. And I also have on my laptop something called Freedom that cuts you off from the internet. Amazing. Um, and so that means that once I've done that, actually I can feel my whole body relaxing. Even describing it now, I can feel my shoulders untensing. Um, and then when I lie in my bed, I'm like, oh, fuck, there was that one email. She's like, well, nothing you can do about it. I mean, if it was so desperately urgent, I could smash the case safe and it would cost me a hundred quid, but I've never done that because I don't want to spend a hundred pounds again. Um, and also then I would think, God, you've actually become like a mad person. But the, the, so you can see how we, we've got to have these techniques. At the moment, we're living in an environment that is profoundly invading our attention. We've got to defend ourselves. We've got to go on the offense. If we just sit here and let it fucking raid us and go, oh, I'll just try in these individual isolated moments to exercise willpower you're setting yourself up to fail. We've yeah. got to have techniques to do those two things. Yeah, I think what you said there about kind of willpower, I think people will over-rely on willpower when I don't think we actually know what willpower property is. Um, I don't think we, it's like kind of like kind of like motivation, relying on that kind of yeah. side of things rather than actually taking control and having the habits, the actions in progress. It's, in, so, in, it's so funny it, you say that, Shane, because I had a total epiphany about this. It was kind of... Very early in the research for the book, I went to interview this brilliant scientist called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's at the University of Queensland in Australia. And, and Professor Baumeister is the leading expert in the world on willpower. He's been researching willpower for 30 years. He wrote a book called Willpower, right? Um, so I go and interview him and I'm like, oh, I'm thinking writing a book about attention and focus. I'm really interested in how some of your ideas might apply to it. And he said to me something like, these are not exactly his words though in the book. You know, it's interesting you should say that because I've just found I can't really pay attention as much these days. I, I play video games on my phone all the time. And I sort of sit there opposite here, but I'm like, didn't you write a book called Willpower? Aren't you the leading expert in the world on willpower? And you're sitting here telling me you're fucking playing Candy Crush all day. It was like the moment at the end of the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realized that everyone has been body snatched by the aliens, right? I was like, fuck me, if even you're saying this to me. And there's a wider truth in that kind of funny experience, which is willpower is a real phenomenon, right? Of course, we all know it is. And we yeah. all know you can boost your own willpower in some circumstances, but willpower takes place in a context. And the best way to strengthen your willpower is to use your willpower to change your environment and your context, right? Yeah. Because, you know, if you put me in a room full of Pringles, I, 
my willpower will break, right? The way I exercise my willpower is I don't buy the Pringles when I go to the supermarket, right? My nephew recently told me that I look uncannily like the man on the Pringles packet, who is just a Pringle with a human face. And uh, it's like, so now whenever I look at myself, that's what I picture. But, the, but yeah, I can't do that, right? But, so I can't, at the point at which it's in front of me and I might eat it, I, I know my willpower will break, very likely break. So what I do is I exercise willpower further up the river. Okay. I don't bring it into my house. I don't, you know, which actually works. I don't eat that many Pringles, right? Uh, if you put me in a room full of Pringles, you know, I'd be fucked. I'd be one of those Americans who literally have to dismantle their house to get them out when they die because they can't get their bodies out, right? Um, so, yeah, there, there's all sorts of techniques. Obviously, I go through dozens and dozens of techniques based on the hundreds of scientists I interviewed. Um, and... But, but most importantly, we've got to take on these bigger forces. Uh, and there's loads of practical ways we can do that. And I went to places that had done that. And that, to me, is the most important level. And that's where I think my book is a bit different to a lot of other books about attention. A lot of books about attention put the focus solely on the individual and the child. Uh, and I, there are loads of things individuals can do. I'm, I'm massively in favour of it. But we've got to have that other level as well. Yeah, I think... like. With the whole kind of like the kind of the concentration levels, and I would be kind of guilty. Like I have, you've got if in this room alone, I've got like four devices I could probably look at if I really wanted to. Oh my but God, they're all on. They've got the laptop. You've got the two work phones, or well, my real life phone and my work phone, and then you've got the Kindle as well. So I've got like, yeah. I've got like four devices I could be looking at, but the Kindle won't go on. The phones go on flight mode if I'm not using them. I've WhatsApp on my phone to work with clients so it, like the freedom app genuinely i brought that in probably like halfway through the first lockdown in ireland um genuinely improved my sleep kept my boundaries kept my focus and allowed me to actually function as a human because without sleep i'm not a nice person and my clients would attest to that and <laughs> I, the two people that work with me as well would say i would attest to that as well so like it, it's, it's just one of those boundaries that i have to set in I know there's other things you've spoken about, which I love to talk about, but I know you've got like loads of interviews on was one of the things that was, in, I think it was in Finland regarding the, um, the studies about kind of like the concentration for kids and that what they bring in, I'm going to let you talk about it in relation to like the 15 minutes, 45 minute rule. That yeah. They bring so, in. Children, so with children of all the 12 courses I write about, this is the one I feel most angry about. And it's the easiest one that we could solve together. Right. So, there's been an explosion in children's attention problems. I can give you the evidence for that, but I doubt anyone listening needs it, right? Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Many things are going on with that. The things we feed our children, the lack of sleep, loads of other things I talk about in the book. But I think the biggest, I think the way we run our schools is a fucking nightmare. It's not the fault of teachers. If you wanted to design a school system that would destroy children's ability to pay attention, you would design the school system we have now. You would get children to learn things that are meaningless to them for tests that measure nothing and are completely pointless, right? And you'll build the whole system around that, which is in fact what we have done. Set all that aside, I go into a lot of that stuff in the book and we can change that. We can fix that. There's been an... In it's not a coincidence this collapse in children's ability to focus has happened at the same time as a profound transformation in childhood. So one of the heroes of my book is a woman called Lenore Skenazi. You should totally have her on your podcast, Shane. Let me know and I'll intro you to her. So Lenore is not the hero because she's part of the problem. It's easy to talk about problems, right? Lenore is the hero because she's built the solution and the solution everyone listening who has kids, you can, you can pick up this now, right? Um, so when Lenore... Lenore grew up in a suburb of Chicago in the 1960s. 
And when she was a kid, um, at the, from the age of five, she would leave her house on her own and walk to her school alone, which was about 15 minutes away. She would generally bump into all the other kids because everyone, all children from the age of five walk to school on their own, right? I'm sure that's true of your parents, Shane. This happened all over that was true of my parents. Children walked to school on their own. In fact, with the Lenore, when they got to the school, uh, there was a busy road. So there was a 10-year-old boy whose job was to help the five-year-olds cross the street, right? And then school would end at three o'clock. Lenore would leave on her own. She'd wander around the neighborhood freely with all her friends. And then she'd go home when she was hungry about five or six, right? So she played freely with her friends. By the time Lenore was a mother in the 1990s, all that had ended. In fact, by 2003, only 10% of American children ever played outdoors without an adult supervising them, ever. And I think that 10% got like 12 minutes a week. So it was just over. Childhood became something that happened. And it turns out that childhood we've lost for children to be able to focus and pay attention. The first is, and again, this is a no shit Sherlock inside, how children pay attention is let them run around, right? Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention. Um, this is just a no-brainer. We're children from running around. We're the first human society ever to do that. And it is profoundly damaged these, obviously, but it's also profoundly damaged their brains. Okay, that's one instance. But as just deeper, as Dr. Isabel Benke, the great Chilean scientist, has shown, children play freely with each other without adults supervising them. That is when they learn how to deploy their attention. They learn what they find interest really important for developing healthy attention. They learn how to persuade other kids to pay attention to the want them to pay attention to. They learn how to pay attention to the things the other kids care about. They learn how to take, they learn how to be brave, how to take risks. Because if you don't do that, you become anxious. That means that your attention will be go to shit. They do all of these things. And we took it all away from them. We took free play away from them. Actually, the relationship between the kind of play they get now which is supervised play, the relationship between supervised play and free play is like the relationship between junk food and whole food, right? It, it just doesn't give you the things that you need. Um, so the only place where our kids ever get to explore on Fortnite and World of Warcraft, we can hardly be surprised that in response, they're a World of Warcraft. So Lenore identified all these problems. And at first she thought, well, the solution is obvious. I just need to persuade parents individually to let their kids decide. So she would go to parents and she'd say things like, what is something that you love to do with a child that you don't allow your own children to do? And people would go, oh, I used to ride my bike in the woods. I used to play marbles. I used to roll them around in my mouth, right? Like all sorts of... But Lenore discovered if you're the only parent who lets your child go out, they get frightened. You look crazy. In fact, often people call the cops, right? So Lenore decided this needs to be done at a different level. So she ran, began to run a group called Grow. It's letgrow.org. I urge everyone listening who's got a child or a grandchild or you, a niece, anyone in your life who's a child who you love, go to letgrow.org. And what Let Grow do is they go to whole schools and whole communities and persuade Everyone to give their children increasing levels of independence that build up to letting their kids play outside again. All the conversations I had for the book, 
the most moving was with a 14-year-old boy in Ireland who was part of a Luck Grow program. And he was a big, tall 14-year-old boy, other than me, and I, well, I'm not short. And until this program had begun nine months before, he had never been allowed out of his house on his own without an adult. They wouldn't even let him jog around. I asked, I asked his parents why. And they said, he said, my parents are afraid of all these things. This is a town in Long Island where the French is across the street from the olive oil store. And this boy had a level of fear that it'd be appropriate if he lived in Syria, right? And then this program began. And all the kids started to play outdoors. And so he said, we, first we played ball games, but then he said, we went into the woods, even though I didn't have signal in the woods. He said, he said that with real awe. And I said, what did you do in the woods? And he said, we built. And I said, what did you do now? He said, we go and we sit in the fort and we build things. And as this boy described it, maybe this sounds melodramatic. It was being a child come to life. And I thought about how many children I know who never get to explore anything, build anything. And, and Lenore was with me that day. And after he, this boy left, she said to me, think about human history and human prehistory. I don't think we're not meant to use that term anymore, but you know what I mean? For all of human history, people had to go out. They had to explore the moment. They had to hunt. They had to seek. They had to find things. Took all that away. And that boy, given a tiny little bit of freedom, went into the woods and thought, because this is so deep in our nature. And I would say in terms of what we need to do to restore tension, there's loads of things we need to do. And I go through lots of them in Stolen Focus. One of them is we need to restore it because we are not giving our children a childhood that our ancestors would have even recognized as a child. And one of the things we need to do I would argue every single school in Ireland should have a Let Grow program. Every single one, right? This costs nothing. It's free, right? It's the, it, I think most people, their political complexion can see this. And I think particularly the tragedy we've all been through in the last two years. Can, oh, I'm sorry. That's my doctor. I'll, I'll be back in one sec. All right. Great. Move along. Sorry. Dane, I'm back. Sorry, it's not the actual, it wasn't my doctor, it was something else. Oh, God. So, if you think about the tragedy we've all been through in the last two years, I think it can really help us to think about this. Um, because whatever you think about the COVID restrictions, broadly in favour of them, everyone can see that locking our children away has caused horrific damage to them, right? Now, you might think, the benefits of that in terms of suppressing virus was greater. I think it may well have been, but you know, wh whether you agree with that or disagree with that, we all have had terrible effects on our kids. Right. But if we can see that locking away our children for two years has been a disaster, then we should be able to see locking our kids. That was a disaster was harming them in all sorts of ways. This could really be an impulse to restore childhood. There are loads of really big things we've got to do in order to get our attention back. We've got to regulate big tech. I would argue we've got to move to a four-day week uh, because we're just exhausted. Um, we've got to give every worker what's called a right to disconnect where you check your work email after you leave work, right? There's all sorts of big things. And then there's dozens and dozens of things. Uh, we've touched on a few of them and many, many more that we haven't had a chance to get to. 
But for me, the biggest important is this thing about restoring childhood. Because if we don't, if our kids don't develop attention, setting them up for a life where, you know, they're not going to die, they're not going to, but they're going to be less competent than they could have been. They're going to achieve less than they could have been. They're going to be less good at solving their problems than they could have been. They're going to have a diminished life. And if you write in childhood, it's going to be much harder to do. You can still do it, but it's going to be harder to develop attention as adults if you've, if you've never really had that experience properly as a child. So, you know, with all these things, we can fix this, but we've got to decide to fix it, right? At the moment, attention is being stolen, hacked and invaded by some of the forces we've talked about and loads more that we didn't get to. And they're not going to stop unless we make them stop, right? In fact, they're only going to become invasive if we let them. Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said the world will be more addictive in 40 years than it was in the last 40 if we don't act, right? So we've got to decide together that we choose a life of attention and focus, that we're not going to put up with being like this, that we don't want lives where we where we can't think deeply, we can't pay attention, our children are outside. We choose instead focus and depth. If we want it, we can fight for it together. I've been to places that did that and made a lot of progress. I have to fight for it. I stress, I mean, obviously fight non-peacefully. I don't want anyone to go and shoot Mark Zuckerberg or something. That would be horrific and completely wrong. We, we, we want... We want but we can win this, right? A lot of these are relatively recent. You know, Dr. Mark, sorry, sorry, Dr. James Williams, who's arguably the leading philosopher of attention in the world, said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.5 years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The entire internet has existed for less than 10 days, right? We can fix this shit. It's not that hard. We just have to fight for it and fight things. Yeah, I I, I remember because I listened to your book on on Audible on audiobook, um, and when you were talking about kind of being a kid, and kind of like you took you you spoke about kind of like remember when, when bringing back the parents to like being a kid and stuff, you you think about like being in a treehouse or just kind of like just messing or British bulldog or whatever it may be the kind of the happy times and stuff that you had there like the social interactions like you are happier at your your point then or you're playing football for like eight hours a day and not sitting at a video game but a console or whatever it may be they're the times that you kind of remember that you kind of go back to and revert back to you're not going to remember being playing fifa or call of duty or whatever the the, the, the point of call is so there's a lot there um a lot to dissect but i think it's i it's, it's an incredible book um and you should be extremely proud of it and it, it genuinely is where can people get the book where can people find out about yourself and get any of the other books the amazing books that you've kind of created as well it's funny you say that about the audio book because the only whole life shame where i've actually wondered if i had gone mad was when i was promoting my book about depression i flew from london to australia to melbourne and i couldn't sleep at all before i went on the flight on the layover so i landed in melbourne and i was fucked i was out and i went to the bus stop in melbourne airport to like get the bus into the center and suddenly i heard i realized i could hear my own voice talking about depression but my lips weren't moving and honestly for about 30 seconds i thought oh my god am i having like a psychotic breakdown what what should i do i think because i was so tired and then suddenly i realized someone in a car in front of me was listening to the audiobook of lost connections and if I'd been like more on the ball, I would have leaned forward and been like, hello. Because can you imagine how fucking weird you're listening to the audiobook and suddenly the author just sticks his head into your car door like, oh, what a complete head fuck, Bim. 
But anyway, I was too tired. I didn't do it. Uh, okay, so what I meant to say, my publishers give me a little fucking script for this. I'm absolute dick. In fact, I can't read it. But anyone who wants to get the ebook, the physical book, or the audio book, get them anywhere where those things are sold. If you want more information, you can go to stolenfocusbook.com, uh, where you can get links to loads of places, but anywhere in Ireland can sell them. I meant to say you can get it at all shops, but I always think that makes it sound like. I mean, you can get it at shit bookshops as well. Don't we don't have like a quality test for like, oh, your bookshop is not good enough for me to for me to let you stock it. Um, you can also to find out about my arts and the audio books for them. You can go to j-o-h-a-n-n-h-a-r-i.com. You can also see where to follow me on social media, though I won't hear anything you say back because I'd much. I really enjoyed this chat, Shane. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Johan. And uh, guys, I, I would highly recommend going to get Oscar Nexus. Highly recommend to get Stone Focus and anything that Johan has, has, has uh, written as well. So, oh. Johan, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers, mate. And when it's out, and I'll share it. And 